Oh, dear congregation, this afternoon we reach the end of the section of, of sermons that we've been doing, uh, focusing on the Ten Commandments. And several of you have pointed out with appreciation how in the past weeks these, these sermons have been uh, so relevant to our lives. The Ten Commandments are not outdated. The Ten Commandments were not just for the Israelites in the Old Testament. But these, are, these are God's uh, permanent, God's unchanging rule of life. Well, Lord's Day 44 is a bit different from the last nine that we looked at, as it does not spend as much time on the 10th commandment as some of the other ones did. If you remember the other uh, sections on each commandment, there was a section on what does God forbid, and then positively, what does God require? But really, in, in, this, in this Lord's Day, as we, as we consider really a conclusion to the 10 commandments, uh, we see how the focus is on applying the 10 commandments as a whole to us. Well, our theme this afternoon is we want to consider uh, Lord's Day 44 in light of Exodus 20, verse 17, and Romans 7 is simply this, a conclusion to the Ten Commandments. With God's help, we want to consider that in three thoughts. First, to see the perfection required. And second, the small beginning experienced. And then third, the ongoing reminders needed. So a conclusion to the Ten Commandments the perfection required, the small beginning experienced, and ongoing reminders needed. Now before seeing this more as a, a big picture conclusion, I do want to quickly look with you at the 10th commandment. In Exodus 20, verse 17, we read, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And the question we need to answer then, first of all, this afternoon is, what does it mean to covet something? And really, to covet something means that you desire something earnestly. Or another definition I found is that you set your heart and your mind on that object or on that person. And the next follow-up question then is this, is all coveting sinful? And here the answer is no. There are things that we should earnestly desire, things that we should seek after. We see an example of that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. There the Apostle Paul writes, But earnestly desire the best gifts. In the King James uh, translation, it's translated as, But covet the best gifts. It is something that you should really desire and long for. It's also not wrong to, there's other things in, in this life that we can, that we can desire. Uh, or perhaps it's a spouse or food or housing or, um, or other legitimate blessings. But coveting, this earnest desire, this longing, it becomes sinful when we, when we, when we set our heart, when we set our mind on something uh, that, is, that is not for us. One pastor wrote this, it is a proud jealousy that claims what rightfully belongs to another, leading to inward anger and hatred and outward theft and violence. A bit later, this pastor says, coveting is rebellion against the God who has forbidden us to have certain relationships or possessions, as when his providence puts them in the rightful possession of another or his law prohibits them to us. So as you think about, about coveting, 
We can say positively, we should long for spiritual gifts. We should long for spiritual blessings. We should long and seek after growing in grace and growing in holiness. And those are things that we should look for, the things that we should have a, a holy desire, even a, a jealousy for. But negatively, we should not covet what belongs to others, right? And, and, and Exodus 20 verse 17 gives us very practical examples. Don't long for your neighbor's wife or his house or his cattle, his property, his possessions. So really this is quite, quite simple. Uh, maybe some other examples we can think of, maybe as, as children, maybe you see another child playing with a toy that you really want, right? And uh, you can, it's, it's okay that you, that you recognize it's a nice toy and maybe that you want to play with it, but it's one thing to say, that's a nice toy, can I please have a turn? Something different to say, I need that toy. I know it's your toy, but I'm going to come and I'm going to take it and, and I'm going to use it. Right? Or perhaps for those of us who are older, to covet when you see an attractive man or woman and you know they're married. And yet, maybe you don't physically commit adultery, but in your heart, you wish that man or that woman was your husband or your wife. That's really what's at the heart of this commandment, uh, this, this sinful longing after something that, that does not belong to you, something that God has not given to you. Well, as we think about this, we, I trust we all need to confess that we are guilty of breaking the 10th commandment in two ways, not having enough of a desire of the things that are good, that we don't set our mind on and, and, and that we don't pursue the things that are right and holy and pure. Also that so often we covet, we long for things that we have no right to long for. As you look at the summary of in the catechism as it applies the 10th commandment more broadly, Really, the, the, what we see there is that there's this requ requirement for complete obedience. And now complete obedience to God's law is not looking at the Ten Commandments and going through the list and checking off the boxes. It's not as though we can say, okay, I went to church, I've worshipped God, I respect my parents, I haven't killed anyone, I haven't slept around, I haven't robbed a bank, I haven't you know, lied to anyone, and, and we go through the list and check the boxes. That's, that's not the point. As we've seen repeatedly through this series, the Ten Commandments get to our hearts. What do we love? What do we long for? Do we give God our desire, as, as the summary says, do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves? That's what God's law is getting at. This, this requirement for perfect love, consistent love. And the answer to question 113, it has a lot of all statements in it. I don't know if you noticed it when you read it earlier. It says there that even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. As we hear this, then we all have to acknowledge 
I have broken God's law. Do I really hate every sin with my whole heart? It's not so often true that while I hate certain sins, there are other sins that I find quite attractive. Other sins I would be quite happy to to give myself or to, to follow after if I knew I could get away with it. Are there not times when we do not love honesty, when we do not love accountability, when we don't love purity and chastity and truth? The Ten Commandments require an all-encompassing perfection. That's true of God and it's true of our neighbor. So there's perfection required as we, as we think of the Ten Commandments. But is that something that even believers get close to reaching? Right? How much progress can, can believers make in obedience to God's law? This is really what question 114 is pointing at as it asks, but can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? I spent some time thinking about that in our second thoughts, a small beginning experience. Now, as we think of a question and answer 114, we need to begin by remembering that this is speaking about believers. If you're an unbeliever, you cannot obey God's law even in the smallest way. A number of weeks ago, we looked at what is, what's required for, for a good work to actually be a, a real good work. And there were three things that were required there. Right? It's something that proceeds from a true faith. It's something that is done in accordance with the law of God. It's something that you do to God's glory. And we see that also in, in the Bible and in various places. For example, in Romans 14, verse 23. And it says there, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you're an unbeliever, if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, then though you may do outwardly good things, you may help your neighbor, you may be respectful to your parents and those in authority, yet because it does not come from a heart of faith, it's not truly done for the glory of God, it is not real obedience. That is, there's, it's stained by sin. But what about believers? Now, certainly it's true that as believers, we do things out of faith, that we seek to obey God's law, that we want to glorify God through our actions. But how, how much progress do we make in this? This is where I want to look really uh, for a while at Romans chapter 7. I invite you to turn with me there again to Romans chapter 7. Now, there's some debate about Romans 7, especially verses 14 through 25, how they should be interpreted. If you look at Romans 7 as a whole, it deals with a believer's relationship with the law. Uh, before, as unbelievers in the opening verses, the picture is used there that you are married to the law. Right, that you are, and really the meaning there is that you are the law is um, that you're under the law. One study Bible says that the law rules people with its demands for complete obedience, and the threats as pun and threats of punishment as long as they are under the covenant of works. So if you're not in Christ, you're still in Adam. You're still under the, the requirement of perfect obedience, as it were, by which you, uh, are, that's the requirement to come to heaven. 
But then Paul goes on to say, you have died with Christ. And just like in an earthly marriage, when, when one spouse dies, that, that marriage relationship is broken, and they're free to get married again. So when we go to Christ, when we are united to Christ, we have died with Christ. We are freed from, from this requirement of perfect obedience to God's law to earn our own righteousness. And now we are saved in Christ. We, we are alive with Christ. But once we are united to Christ by faith, uh, there's this change that takes place. But that doesn't mean that the law is now irrelevant for the believer. Uh, verse 6 makes clear that the very opposite is true. Verse 6 we read, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So instead of trying to keep the law in a legalistic way, trying to, to earn our own righteousness, we now want to live with joy and thankfulness and gratitude to God. Again, how should we live then? What's going to be our standard for life? And again, this is, this is why the law is not irrelevant. It is through the law that God shows us right and wrong, and what, is, and what is pleasing to Him. But there's a, there's a change that takes place. We're not trying to earn something. We're not trying to earn righteousness. We want to keep the law out of thankfulness, out of gratitude to God. In verse 12, Paul goes on to clarify the character of the law. He says, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Again, it's through the law that we know right and wrong. Then we get to the section from verses 14 to the end of the chapter. And some, some Christians argue that this struggle with sin, for example, we see in verse 15, right? For what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. Or, or Paul's cry in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So some people say that does not apply to the believer. Uh, this is someone that is, is unregenerated. Or perhaps a, you know, a backslidden believer, a believer that has not been you know, filled and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Really, they may be influenced by the holiness movement. This really came out of the 19th century Methodism. I think many of you know Charles Wesley, the well-known hymn writer. And he and others taught that it's possible that in this life we reach a point of perfection. That by the help of the Holy Spirit and diligent use of the means of grace, we can become perfectly sanctified. And there's even some that would say that, uh, that would claim that they no longer sin. But I would argue that if, if you believe that is possible, you have either, you have two options. Either you need to change the definition of sin and lower the standard to outward actions, or are you going to live in constant doubt, constant worry? Because if you believe it's possible that, it's, that you can reach perfection in this life, that you can stop sinning, and yet you look within your heart and you examine your mind and you see there's all kinds of sin. I'm constantly struggling with sin. There's, there's sinful thoughts and th sinful uh, words that I speak and I, I respond simply to those around me. If it's possible and you're, you're not getting anywhere near it, you're always living in doubt. 
Well, as you look at, at the last verses in Romans 7, I believe there is plenty of evidence that Paul in these verses is describing himself as a believer in his own current struggles that he's going through. If you look at verse 14, uh, in the first part of this chapter, he's using the past tense. Uh, these are things that, that have happened. I've, I've died with Christ. I'm alive with Christ. I'm, I'm freed from the law. But now in verse 14, he switches to the present tense. And he begins to describe things as though this is how he's currently experiencing them. This is the struggle he has right now. So that's one reason I believe this is Paul speaking as a believer in his current state. But another reason I believe this is speaking about believers is verse 22. And it says there, there Paul says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I don't believe this is something that an unregenerated person can ever say. It's only by the grace of God in changing our hearts and opening our eyes that we begin to love God's law. That we begin to delight in God's law and want to live in it. Also, we see how Paul uh, repeatedly speaks of uh, his inward desire, his will to do what is right. I think we also see support for this as you look at other, other uh, prominent believers in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. Can you think of anyone who was perfect? And there are a few examples, those uh, Joseph and perhaps Daniel. You don't read any sins about them. But the vast majority of Old Testament and New Testament believers, so often they struggle with sin. Think of Abraham and Sarai. Uh, think of Moses as he get, loses his temper. Uh, of Elijah with his doubts and his a, he's asking to die. Uh, of David, we know David, he, he was a real believer and he fell terribly. Or Solomon, the wisest man alive who sought the Lord and yet he sinned in so many ways. Or in the New Testament, we have the 11 disciples, if you exclude Judas. All of them abandon Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Later on, Paul has to rebuke Peter uh, for uh, compromising the gospel. If you read a letter to the church in Corinth, the whole Corinthian church was guilty of tolerating sin in their midst. Right? So if you look at, at all these, these prominent believers in the Old and New Testament, and really also here the Apostle Paul speaking of his own experience, there's this ongoing struggle with sin. You can also read the journals of well-known pastors or missionaries. Maybe in your own life, think of godly men and women that you respect. Did any of them claim to have reached perfection? Did any of them claim that they no longer sin? Right? Even in your own heart, if you profess to be a believer, do we not see that we sin so often? So on one hand, there's, there's comfort in this reality that no Christian can perfectly keep God's law in this life. And there's comfort in that, right? Because if, if that was possible, there would be such a sense of guilt on us that we're not doing enough, we're, we don't have enough faith, we're, we're not being diligent enough. So there's a certain a sense of reality that we have here, this reality that believers do struggle with sin. 
But this reality that, that we struggle, that is not an excuse that gets us off the hook. It doesn't mean that since all believers struggle with sin, that we say then, well, no one's perfect. No one's able to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. Let's not be so, so strict. Let's not put so much effort in. That's what, we don't see that here in Romans or even in the summary from the Catechism. God in, this, in the Bible repeatedly calls us to perfect obedience and total surrender. I'll give you two examples. First from 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. There it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's a call that, that comes through the Apostle Paul from God. Or 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And that's the desire of a real believer, to be holy, to stop sinning, to stop sinning against God, to stop sinning against those around you who you love. It's a desire of the believer that God would help you to grow and to mature and to be more like Christ in the things that you say and the things that you do and the things that you think about. Second half of the answer to question 114 says, Yet so, that with a sincere resolution they begin to live, not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Isn't it also what we see in the second half of Romans 7? Paul keeps going back to his desire, his will, his will to obey God, his love and delight in God's, God's law. He says, I want to do this, but I keep finding myself doing the opposite. Uh, it has this, he has this desire, this longing in his heart to glorify God, and he's grieved that so often he fails. As a, as a way, there's a picture there of a battle, isn't there? The Bible sometimes talks, we use the words, the old man and the new man. And that the old man, it's our, it's our sinful nature, our sinful desires. But the new man, that's our regenerated will and our mind and desires. And, and within us, it can be this battle. On one hand, we're being drawn towards sin. We were going after sin. On the other hand, we're grieved by sin. We, we, we wish this battle was over. And we see that in, in verse, uh, 20, verse 24. Or, 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 uh, Paul cries out. Verse 24, uh, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And right after that he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, Paul had been redeemed. He had been forgiven. He had been born again. He has been given a new desire, a new will. 
And in Christ, he will ultimately one day be delivered from this struggle. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of the return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And beginning at verse 51, he says, We shall not all sleep. That means we won't all die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's what Paul's looking forward to. The return of Christ, the day of the, the resurrection from the dead. And then finally, this struggle is over. His body, that corruptible body, his body that often goes after sin, it's going to be changed in the twinkle of an eye. From corruption to incorruption, from mortal to immortal. That's what Paul is longing for. Well, in the meantime, what should we do? What should we do while we're, we're here? If we're believers, we have this desire and longing, yet we have these struggles. Well, we should sincerely resolve to live according to all the commandments of God. We need to deny ourselves. We need to put sin to death. We need to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. We need to confess our sins to God, again, telling Him how we so often fail. We so often, we come short. Also to confess our sins to others. We go to God for help. And we should go to others for accountability, for support, for encouragement. We should diligently use the means of grace. Well, before we go on to the third point, I want to pause and ask you, can you relate to any of this struggle personally? We're beginning a week of preparation where we need to examine ourselves and, and to see whether we know anything of God's saving work, God's transforming work in, in our hearts and our lives. The Lord's Supper is for believers, not unbelievers. And in this week, we, we have the responsibility to examine ourselves and say, do I know the grace of God? Do I know His, His transforming work, His transforming power? Now, it's possible to make a profession of faith and not to be a believer. Some of us are from a background where the majority of people who make profession of faith would openly admit to being unbelievers, to being unconverted. So the question is not, have you made profession of faith at some point, but do you know God's work? A number of questions we can ask ourselves. First of all, am I looking to and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness, for salvation? That's foundational, right? Faith in Jesus Christ. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to show itself in a number of ways. It's going to show itself in a sorrow and hatred for sin. How can you love Christ and still love sin and go on in sin? Now, the fruit is going to be a desire to live a godly life. And again, we see Paul speaking of that so clearly here. It's a love and delight in God and His law. 
unbelievers, they do not love God's law. They might try to keep God's law. They might try to quiet their conscience and saying, okay, I haven't committed this sin this week, but they don't love God's law. They don't see the beauty of, of God's instruction and how God protects us and God helps us through his law. Another fruit is an ongoing fight against sin. And lastly, we need to ask ourselves, am I looking forward to the coming of Christ when this battle will be over? When finally I will be perfectly and completely free from this sin that I so often find myself running after? Well, if the answer to these questions is yes, then praise God for His grace. Praise God for His work in your heart and in your life. If your answer to these questions is no, then seek the Lord. Take His word. Plead the promises. Use that picture of the persistent friend in, in Luke chapter 11. Jesus there is teaching about prayer. And he uses this example of a man who needs bread. He goes at midnight to his friend. And he keeps on pounding on his friend's door until his friend eventually gets up and gives him what he wants. That's what Jesus is saying. We should be like that in prayer. Keep on praying. Keep on pleading until you know that your sins are forgiven. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you're not sure. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you, are, that you need Christ as your Savior, that Christ is the only Savior. Your sins weigh you down, they grieve you, and yet you, you have no real confidence, no real assurance that your sins are forgiven, that Christ really is your Savior. The answer then, again, is to go to Christ. Keep on praying. Confess how you see so much inconsistency in your life. Confess your doubts. Confess your failures. Pray that God would give you clarity, that God would give you assurance. We can read in, I forget what chapter it's in, but of the, the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, how the Spirit testifies to our spirits that we are God's children. We can pray for that, that God would make it very clear that you are right with Him you belong to him. Well, so far we have been considering the conclusion to the Ten Commandments. We've seen the perfect or the perfection that is required. We've looked a little at the, the small beginning that believers can experience. Let's go on and consider in our third thoughts the ongoing reminders needed. Here as we follow the progression of the catechism, we see that question 115 builds directly on question 114. And it asks there, Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preach, since no man in this life can keep them? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do we have to keep on hearing about God's law? Why do we in, in, our, in our church, why do we read the Ten Commandments every single Sunday? Is that really necessary? Is there any benefit in that? Well, there are three reasons why we need these repeated reminders. And the first is that the law teaches us about our lost state. It teaches us about how wicked sin is. In Romans 7, verse 7, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? The answer is certainly not. 
On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. It is through the reading and the preaching of God's law that God convicts us, that God shows us we are sinners. We have broken His law. We are rebels against God. We are enemies of God by nature. It's not just initially that as unbelievers we, we need to hear the law. We need to have our sin exposed. I trust you know the sad story about David taking Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah. God sends the prophet Nathan to confront Daniel. And Nathan uses an ex- in a story there, really a parable. And in that story, there's, there's an example of an abuse of power and theft. And David, he hears that story, and he, he rightly applies God's law. He says, that was wrong. That was wicked. That, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan says to the king, you are the man. And David there, he knew God's law. And he knew how to apply it to others. He had stopped applying it to himself. That's why even as as believers, we need to keep on hearing God's law. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us when we begin to go astray, when we begin to live in sin, that that the sin would be exposed and we we would see what we're doing wrong. So we need to hear the law to be to be convicted of sin. Now it's possible to be convicted of sin for a while, but over time the convictions fade. Perhaps you know people in your own lives or those who maybe have come to church to worship and for a while they're convicted. They hear the law, they hear the preaching of the gospel, their sins seem to bother them, they seem to be looking for a savior. But as time goes on, those convictions wear off. And maybe they start coming less and less to church, and after a while, they seem to disappear. That's very sad, isn't it? They have seen something of their need. They have heard the gospel that Christ is the remedy to their sins. But in the end, they have rejected the gospel. They have walked away. They have gone back to their sins. But thankfully, there are many other cases in which you see a very different result. In Galatians 3, verse 24, Paul writes, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And the particular way in which God leads sinners to Christ can vary a little bit. Some of us maybe were drawn more by the love of Christ and later were more convicted by sin. But often, God begins by convicting people of sin, by showing them, you are a sinner. You deserve to be punished. But here is the good news. Here is a Savior. And that's what Paul was pointing us to there in Galatians chapter 3. The law is a tutor. It's a teacher. And it shows us what lives in our hearts. It shows us how serious sin is. The more convicted we are, the more we cry out to God for deliverance. Again, as believers, if we begin to go astray, it's often again through the law that we 
We recognize sin, and because we recognize sin, we are again driven back to Christ. We go back to Christ, confessing, Lord, again I have sinned against you. Again, I have broken your law. It's also as believers continue to understand the law better, and they see how and that they break God's law in countless ways, this also gives them a greater appreciation of Jesus Christ as Savior. If you go to the doctor and you have a minor cut or maybe a minor sprain, you're thankful when the doctor stitches you up or when you get a cast for your foot. But it was only, he only helped you a little bit. But if you go to the doctor, you've been in chronic, debilitating pain for years, and you've tried doctor after doctor after doctor, and no one's been able to help you. But finally, you find a doctor, and he can do surgery, or he has medicine for you, and you're cured. And you, as, as it were, you get your life back. You're healthy and strong. You have real appreciation for that doctor. And the same is true spiritually. The more we see our sins, the more we see how wicked we are, the more we stand amazed by the love and the mercy and the grace of God, the more we recognize how, how despicable our sin is, the more we appreciate what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that he would take those sins he would take those sins and he would take them to himself and he would take the punishment that those sins deserved. Because on the cross, when, when God the Father looked at Jesus, he saw Jesus as one who, who was guilty of all those sins. That's why God punished Jesus. He became accursed. He took the sins to himself. If we think of all the sins that we have committed, so many things you don't even want to talk about or think about. That's what Christ had to take. That's what Christ had to suffer for. He had to die for. That's, the, that's why he endured the anger of God in those, in those hours on the cross. So we need to, we need the, uh, the ongoing reminders to recognize sin, to seek deliverance, but lastly, to grow in grace. If we are believers, I hope that we are not sleeping around. I hope we're not stealing supplies from our boss. I hope we're not occasionally praying to Buddha. Right? There are these, these open, serious sins that, that I, I hope and pray that none of us are, are engaged in. That doesn't mean there are, that there's not other sins, other remaining sins in our hearts. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's envy. Bitterness, resentment, maybe it's um, times of, of unbelief and doubt. So often we reflect so little of that character of Christ. It's why we need to keep on hearing the law again and again. Because as, as the Holy Spirit continues to work in the lives of believers, it's often like he begins, he treats us a bit like a project. Let's begin in the bathroom and deal with this problem. And now that that's dealt with, let's, let's focus on, on a different area in which you struggle. And there's this, this ongoing growth and, and progression in the life of a Christian if it's healthy, where God at different times convicts us and exposes different sins that r remain in our hearts. 
If you look at the Beatitudes, it's quite a remarkable list that we find there. Poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker, willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, all of these are true in some degree of Christians. Here again, don't we have to acknowledge we would like them to be a lot more true of us. We like to see a lot more growth in meekness and in, in a sorrow over sin and in a thirsting and hungering after righteousness. The law exposes our ongoing failures and weaknesses so that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. That's why we need the law, to keep on driving us to Christ, to keep on showing us the work of the Holy Spirit, and to stir up in our hearts a greater desire for the return of Christ when there be no more sin, no more struggles, no more temptations, but forever we'll be with Christ. Forever we get to worship Christ there in, in, in heaven. I mean, no more suffering, no more pain. How wonderful that will be. Amen. Our Father who is in heaven, we come to you in prayer. And Lord, as we have wrapped up our study about the Ten Commandments, Lord, again we confess we have broken your law. Lord, we're so thankful for your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, how he perfectly kept the law. And how he died in the place of sinners. How he took the punishment that we deserve. Lord, help all of us to look to Christ in faith. If we are believers, we pray that you'd He'd help us to grow in grace, help us to grow in holiness, grow in zeal, help us to grow in Christ-likeness. Lord, help us that as we read in the Psalms, that refrain, oh, how I love your law, is a meditation day and night. Lord, help us to treasure your word, your word that reveals to us our sins, but above all, your word that reveals to us a great and glorious Savior. We pray that you be with us in this week. Whether we return to work or to school, whether a number of us can enjoy a time of vacation and be engaged in different activities, we pray that you'd protect us, that you'd help us. But above all, we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, keep us from sin, keep us from evil, make us hate sin more. We pray all these things for Christ's sake alone. Amen.